I'm Frederick Gerten, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. And Leilani, you're also the former UN Special Rapporteur on Adequate Housing. Meaning that this, is true. this role you had in the film I made is like, it's, you're not there anymore. You're not, you don't have, you lost your UN hat. Yes, I'm free. You're free. You're free. <laughs> Liberated. Free at last. Liberated. Free at last. That's right. So now, what's, you're the global director of the shift. So what are, is anything, what, what are you doing today? This week, for example, what is happening? Well, a big thing happened this morning, uh, which is uh, 1,400 families in Buenos Aires, Argentina, were evicted. Uh, they were living on lands. They had nowhere else to live. Buenos Aires is a very expensive city. So they were living on public lands, I believe. And they were brutally evicted this morning, uh, October 30th. And as it happens, I intend to go to Buenos Aires. Go. I'm putting it in quotes because, of course, with the middle of this pandemic, we don't go anywhere. But we're we were planning a trip. The shift was planning a trip to Buenos Aires um, to visit virtually. And so now for sure we will do that. We're doing it in November. It's horrible. I mean, and this is like, this is Buenos Aires, but this is happening in so many places around the world that people get evicted in the midst yeah. of, of this pandemic. And, and you are still this kind of global watchdog. So how do you... Trying to be. Yeah, it's a, it's a <laughs> lot yeah. of work. Trying to be. It's a lot of work. But, um, you know, we need the, the global scale of the housing crisis requires a global response. And uh, so I'm starting to work a little bit more with my successor, the new special rapporteur. But then the shift has its own role to play. So, cool. yeah, it's a lot of work. What's going on with you, Frederick? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing what we always do. I be Yesterday I was talking to university in Norway to the students and... And I mean, as almost every day, there is something I was doing a podcast to uh, a film festival in Pittsburgh that is showing the right. film and you were in the panel last night. So I it's was. like it's, it's the film is it's um, it's moving around and it's cool. But today we have a special guest and this very special guest was actually leading our first panel with push it was in geneva at the human rights film festival and patrick battler a social policy editor at the guardian in london welcome to pushback talks hello hi frederick hi leilani hi patrick welcome so we actually tried to make some kind of focus on united kingdom that's what you say united kingdom even if you have a queen i'm a little bit confused but it's okay <laughs> that's how it works um so Do you remember your first reactions when you saw Push? What kicked in for you? I was blown away, actually, by Push. Um, I, what I loved, um, apart from the kind of global scale of this, I mean, I think when you're a journalist working almost entirely in one place, which in my case is the UK, it's astonishing to see how your film kind of made it clear this is a global problem of housing and homelessness and it sort of stitched everything together so this is happening in asia this is happening in south america this is happening in new york as well as london 
and and uh, you know northern Europe. So I think it was for me it was that sense of you'd really successfully managed to to stitch everything together. And of course, it was brilliantly directed, Frederick. And in late, and in Leilani, you had this fantastic presenter, really, uh, who had such energy on the screen, and it just made it a very, a very human story. I think you're talking about Leilani's hairstyle, isn't it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, bad joke, bad joke. Uh, I mean, I love your hair, and your hairdresser actually has a credit in the film, so that's important. She does. <laughs> <laughs> but then we met in 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 London again, Patrick, uh, for the yeah. UK release of the film, which was actually one week before everything closed down. So we actually had great reviews. The, the film was about to go out in many cities around the country. We had panels planned and. But when you saw it again, did you, any anything new pop up for you, or uh, a year I, later? Kind a, of? a year later, I saw it again at um, yes, at that, that 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 film showing in central London, and um, I think what I, I mean, of course, I thought it confirmed for me that this was a really powerful piece of filmmaking. But I mean, even then, I remember meeting and talking to you and you're right, it was a week before lockdown. And I think already people, we were there in the foyer of the cinema and we're kind of thinking, we're looking around at people sniffling and, yeah. and wondering, <laughs> you know, are we, are we on the brink of something here? And, and you two were, were, of course, at that time, you were jet setting all over the world, it seemed to me. I was very envious of you because, you know, you had a film... <laughs> You had a the film festival in Canada and Sweden and Norway, and you know there was me stuck in London, and it just felt like we were, I think we were getting first intimations that we were on the edge of something quite serious. And you were, I remember you discussing, are we going to be able to fly there next week? Will we get home in time? Mm. And so it felt quite auspicious at the time. It mm. was a special date. Patrick, in, in your reporting, uh, I mean, you're a very busy journalist and editor at The Guardian. You've been looking into a lot of the, of, of the poverty situation in the UK. It seems like you're in, a, in kind of a crisis right now in your country. I think we, we are. And I think what's, what's really striking about what's happened in the UK and... And let's be clear, what's happening in the UK has happened across the world and certainly across the Western world, where economies have gone into rapid contraction. Lots of people have lost their jobs or are working less. Um, they're reliant on, on social support. Uh, and, and all these are common across the world. Uh, I think when I look at the UK and how uh, and the impact of coronavirus uh, and, and lockdown on the UK, I think what we're seeing is is the, the legacy of 10 years of austerity, where in the UK context, what we've seen is over the past decade, public spending has been cut, 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 cut. And I think what we're seeing is at this moment of crisis, some of the structures that we thought were just about still in place to help people in their hour of need uh, had become very fragile indeed. What I see from here is that this 22-year-old footballer from Manchester United, uh, Marcus Rashford, like a, a young uh, black guy from Manchester who makes 10 million pounds a year, he's mounted a campaign and got 1 million signatures to 
for food check to, to poor people. And also he made a lot of restaurants and cafes to, to give meals for free. But it's, it seems like it's an extreme situation. If he can feel it, if he can feel that stress around in his community, it must be, it must be a big crisis. I think I think the, one of the great things, one of the important things about Marcus Rashford's campaign, and and there's no two ways about it. This is a stunning, phenomenal campaign by this incredibly articulate young man, um, who is also a millionaire footballer. Um, <laughs> is is the authenticity with which he speaks. Mm. So. He's been very open about his own background. So he grew up in South West Manchester and he grew up on a council estate and he, he had a single mum and he had free school meals when he was a kid and his mum struggled often to put food on the table. But, you know, she made the sacrifices to do that when she could. And even though he's incredibly talented and made this rapid rise to to stardom and global renown he hasn't forgotten his roots and where he came from and i think it's that authenticity is one of the reasons why he struck such a chord the other reason i think why he struck such a chord is the tone with which he speaks the kind of politeness the reasonableness um, the appeal to people's better natures comes i think is a real surprise to people the thing you have to remember about the UK and particular England is that we've become a very divided society in recent years. We had Brexit, Leave, Remain, bitter feuds between right and left. Uh, this is something we've seen all over the world, of course. And, and I think what Marcus Rashford was able to do was cut through that kind of partisanship. He kind of depoliticised this subject. Now, we know ultimately this is a political subject, but he was able to cut through that and appeal to all sides of the political spectrum on this. And he appealed to people's better nature as well. I mean, people loved mm. what he was able to do and asking them to do. How do you reflect on this, Leilani? One of the things that's so amazing about the Marcus Rashford voice is that in my experience in the UK, albeit somewhat limited experience, but I did go and talk to a whole lot of people uh, after the Grenfell tragedy, um, people affected by the Grenfell tragedy, the survivors. And there's there's been a long um, standing and consistent refrain from people living in poverty in the UK that they do not have voice, they are not listened to, they are not, um, they're, they're treated as second class citizens, if citizens at all, um, etc. And, and Marcus brings, brings the voice of, as you say, this authentic voice of what it's like to live in poverty in a rich nation like the United Kingdom. And of course, he has a racialized voice. So that's super important, too. Um, so for, for me, I think, you know, it's 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 very scary to me where the United Kingdom is going, especially this whole the rise of food banks. I live in a country where food banks came about as a result of neoliberalism and these the as you say the ten year legacy for in Canada is a very much longer legacy of um, uh, 
a kind of austerity or structural adjustment program in this country. And once you go down the food bank road, it's very, the the return from there is very difficult, I would say. Uh, But I do think that um, shining a light on this food issue in the UK and and it being done by a footballer, I think it's it's brilliant, actually. But it's also a bit scary because, I mean, here in in Sweden, it's different. I mean, my dad was... He went to the soup kitchen when he was a kid in the 30s. That's a long time ago. It's actually his 91st birthday today. I just talked to him. Um, but, I mean, for us, it would, you know, food banks is like, uh, it's nothing that happens here. Every every kid has a school meal, you know. It's like it's, it's still functioning. So hear it from a Western European country like the UK that you you have one million people signing in that we need food to poor children it's like it's unheard of it's like it's it's scary and it's also something that it's in the news in the global news circle it's not in there you know there is so many things that's cooking around but it's all this kind of who's winning in the swing states and you know and, and it's it like it. there, yeah there is so much noise so the real stories are not coming out so it's cool that somebody actually breaks through we met in London a long time ago when I was filming uh, Push. And I remember we went to this, I don't remember the area was, was like this new really big condo building shooting up. And remember, they didn't, they didn't, we were not allowed to film inside. It was a storm outside, but it was like, what was the name of that area? It's, it's, uh, it's Hoxton, which is very much a, a oh, sort right. of uh, quite glitzy upmarket. <laughs> place with a kind of uh, hipster legacy but I, I suspect that most people who live in those houses uh, sorry not houses by god no these are these great apartment blocks I suspect very few of them um, are hipsters they're, they're too rich for that and, and and I guess some of them are also <laughs> these dark towers I mean lots are not not everybody's people don't even live there Living but there. I also remember we went to a pub to make you were interviewing <laughs> Leilani and that it, I remember it very that, well because it was so noisy. Yeah, but it but it was a pub that actually was saved by the clients because it was about to get kicked out, and then the clients really made a campaign. So the the lounge part of the pub went to be uh, like an upmarket office, but then the pub was still running on a very small uh-huh. space. That's why it was so noisy, Leilani. But yes. I mean, I remember <laughs> when we talked about there was like almost a pub closing a week in the UK. It's a part of this financialized energy that happens in the UK. Is this still something that is you can feel that your country is changing thanks to this, uh, the energy of, of money? Well, I think up to March, things were going pretty much as they were before. You know, I think there was a, there was a sort of unstoppable kind of motion towards the things that you just talked about, this financialization, the investment in these these huge anonymous um, housing blocks. And I just wonder whether that has stopped now. So what we have seen over the last six months is a disruption of uh, of that trend. And I think it's probably too early to say, yes, it's it, it stopped. I suspect at the very top end, where you're talking multi-million pound apartments in the very centre of London, you know, your your Kensingtons and Chelsea's and so on, I suspect maybe not. 
Um, what I do hear is that as soon as you get out of the centre of London to the edges, what you might call zone two in the, in the you know, the, on the tube map, zone three, rents, private rents are coming down. And this, this is quite interesting, often by up to 20%. And I think the reason is, of course, lots of people who were uh, kind of climbing over each other to rent in these places and, pi and pay huge amounts of rent every month were now uh, furloughed or they were told to work from home. And uh, often rather than work from home in an overpriced London rental flat, they went home to their mum and dad's house, for example. Or they decided we're going to move out of London altogether to somewhere much cheaper. So you had this phenomenon. And, and also the touristification, I was about to say. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the Airbnbs and yeah. the short-term rentals is like a yeah. big chunk in every big city. So, of course, if people are not coming to London, it's, it's changed things too, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know globally we're seeing that a lot of those who own units intended for the short-term platforms like Airbnb and HomeAway, those are being converted into longer-term rentals. My, I think it's a, it, I think it's super interesting, and I've heard, for example, that um, the cost of uh, rentals is coming down in in Manhattan as well. I mean. It's so expensive there that by coming down even 10 or 20 percent, it's still unaffordable for most people. But still, it's an interesting trend. The question, I guess, is, you know, as we if we ever emerge from this nightmare and let's hope we do, um, if there aren't tenant protections put in place, um, I think we might see a return to normal. In other words, OK, so those units will be occupied, but the ability for landlords to raise the rents will re will be still intact and so as things emerge and as economies pick up we may just see the unaffordability happen again you know that's that's my concern so the question is is there any political appetite for actually doing anything about that you know looking forward and i don't know in the uk if you have a sense of i mean with the current government in place whether that would be of a, any concern to them i think for the current government this is a kind of existential shock because deep in the core of this government is an idea that the market is going to sort everything out. Deep, deep in this, this government is a sense that, I mean, we're talking about the people, lots of people who donate to the Conservative Party are corporate landlords or uh, lots of MPs. We know have their own investments in, in uh, private uh, housing. So I think, I think you're talking about trying to change the mindset of a government uh, that really thought that this was the natural order of things. And I think thinking newly about how we're going to do things in future, I don't think they're anywhere near thinking about that yet. What we have seen is that they have taken steps, thankfully, uh, to delay evictions. So where people haven't been private renters, haven't been able to pay rent because they've lost their job uh, or they, they're no longer able to work the hours that they did previously, their income has gone down. Uh, there's been a stay on um, the courts um, being able to process eviction proceedings against them. Now, that's been pretty much put on hold since, uh, I, I believe, March. And uh, it may now have been lifted, but of course there's huge backlog, so it's going to take a long time for people to to for lots of people to, to reach the point where they're evicted but at some point 
they're going to have to address it. What, what about the, lo the local governments? Are they in London, for example? Is there any different action from them? I think local government, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they've had 10 years where they've lost effectively 50% of their funding. So their spending power has gone down massively. So 50%? Yeah. So they're... Their ability to intervene meaningfully, and, and for them, this is in two areas. One is, is kind of investing in housing, which they've been prevented from doing for a long time. So particularly social housing, that's affordable housing, low rent housing. That's one thing that they have struggled to do. The other thing they have to do is support homeless people. And as we know, over the last few years, there's been a massive rise in numbers of homeless people. And again, um, they're struggling to provide the kinds of support for homeless people through the provision of temporary accommodation, for example, uh, which they're legally obliged to do. So I think there's a lot of there's a lot of goodwill on the part of local government, particularly in the, the big cities, because they know this is a massive problem. Homelessness is a growing problem. But how far they have the resources to do this uh, is another question. Mm, can I can I dig a little bit deeper, Patrick, on this homelessness issue? Because when the pandemic struck, um, I was watching governments around the world like, what are they going to do? And I knew as soon as the World Health Organization said the only uh, prescription we can offer here because we've got no medicine is for people to stay home, wash their hands, and physical distance. And most governments moved, except for the government of Sweden, moved quite quickly into that mode. That was the health policy of every level of government around the world. So I was watching. So, well, stay home. Well, what does that mean for people living in homelessness? <laughs> they can't stay home. Uh, and so I saw the UK government act quite swiftly. In fact, I think it was quick out of the gate, quicker than most governments. And what they did was they, at least in the city of London, I'll say, because that's what I was really just watching the city of London. People were put into hotels, for example. Some people were housed at Heathrow. Um, my question is, what is going to happen if you're saying councils have lost 50% of their funding and they are responsible for helping people who are living in homelessness. So, I mean, this pandemic is, is not ending. The numbers in the UK are a nightmare right now. Um, what What's the plan? Do you know? Or Well, Leilani, you're right, and I think it's to this government's credit that it has taken homelessness seriously, particularly rough sleeping. Now, you know, there's a caveat to that, which is you wonder whether they are putting the, the kinds of resources into it that that it needs but I think it's to this mm. government's credit that it acted reasonably quickly after the pandemic started and you're right we had this everybody in campaign where uh, local government was uh, funded uh, to effectively put up all the rough sleepers it could muster on its streets into hotels and of course hotels were empty which helped so, you know, I'm sure some of the hotel um, chains were, were massively um, appreciative of, of this move. Uh, but this is what happened. And so for the first couple of months, you had homeless people who were on the streets who now had uh, somewhere to stay, albeit a hotel room. What happened in, I think it was probably around July, August time, when in the UK, this is where we start to come out of national lockdown 
and there's a loosening, general loosening. People are kind of going out and about, and the government's thinking, my God, we're paying, this is costing us billions. And so all of a sudden, that's when the funding stopped. That's when people mm-hmm. came out of the hotels, and uh, by and large. And I think uh, this probably felt okay at the time because it was summer we had a reasonably warm summer but now it's autumn going into winter Mm. uh, and we've got a second wave and i think the onus now is on the government to uh to to act again what is it going to do about people who are on the streets and you know we, we don't really have a clear idea of how many rough sleepers there are uh, in the UK, mm. but it's probably between ten and fifteen thousand. I think the official figures say it's about five thousand. Um, wow. So it's a lot of people, and and I, I'm not sure whether the government uh, is proposing to put them all up in hotels over Christmas. And I think it's going to be something to look out for. Mm. Mm. I read something about some policy of deportation of people who are rough sleeping who are not uh, UK nationals. Um, so, and I think that that represents not a not a massive portion of the rough sleepers, but a significant portion. I don't know the exact figure, um, but that's pretty worrying that rough... Now, I heard that they would use that as a last resort, um, but, um, I mean, that's certainly something to push against or push back, um, because that's, I th- imagine that, I, m- I mean, you can imagine the circumstances under which someone arrives in the UK and ends up being a rough sleeper and then to be returned back to their country in the middle of a pandemic seems, I don't know. Well, I think, well, mean, uh, I, it's mean, but I, I, I think we have to see the politics behind this. And certainly the Home Office, which is the government department in the UK, which is responsible uh, for immigration, um, uh, is very keen to constantly project that it is being very tough on migrants. So at any opportunity, it's particularly if you've got a, you know, this is a classic what they call the dead cat tactic, where if you've got a raging problem, you know, like the pandemic, then you throw a dead cat on the table and everyone is distracted from the main problem and looks mm. at the dead cat. Shift, shifting the focus is a classical technique of uh, yeah. of the powerful and, and they have... Tons of, of really sharp spin doctors. There's a strong tradition of that in, in the UK. And, and we need to look out for when they are trying to shift the focus. And our job is, of course, to try to shift the focus back to the, to the real stories. Right. I, I have something else. Uh, because, you know, in the film, we go to a place that is now called Elephant Park. It was before a big social housing estate called Haygate Estate, built in the 80s, but it was just taken down. I think that the, that the borough needed money. I don't know, it was something. And so so they actually evicted thousands, or I think 3,000 people, and then they built this elephant park. And we, when we were walking around, it was almost everything was standing empty. So it was sold in packages on 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 fairs in Singapore and Hong Kong and so for people to invest money. So how is this is this a one time story 
or is this something that gets repeated that that borrowers are selling out their their social housing because they they need money or how how what is happening there right now well i think one of the interesting things about the pandemic is that it has forced people uh, policymakers especially to to re-examine certain issues and obviously housing is a clear one here and i think it's probably fair to say that on balance people are beginning to re-recognize the importance of social housing and they're beginning to recognize that you just can't leave this to the market so i think you have the government as well as the opposition uh, talking about the importance of social housing or at least affordable housing which in a way um, you know we've begun to realize this was a problem as you know but i think it's the past six months which are really concentrating minds on this and um, and i think it's, it's not just housing but it's across the board and one of the things i wanted to talk about which again takes us back to to poverty is one of the striking things about the last six months in the uk is how this crisis this standard of living crisis has hit a cohort of people who up to now had never felt poverty had never been dependent on welfare benefits to survive um, kind of you know middle income lower middle class people who had previously good jobs who all of a sudden have found themselves dependent on uh, on the state and dependent on food banks and worrying about how to pay the rent and i think that may change the dial politically so poverty is not just this thing that happens to these other people over there who you know are feckless and lazy and it's all their own fault i think people are beginning to get a different perspective on this now just to give you a really fascinating example i spoke to an airline pilot a few weeks ago who of course his industry was absolutely decimated in march that's an airline pilot and he said to me um i i my work dried up over at night i had you know i had to pay my mortgage i had to pay this i had to pay that i applied for universal credit i didn't get it because i was earning too much or you had too much in savings and he said you know i had all this downtown time i started looking into this and i realized the british social security system is in really bad shape isn't it i've never thought about this before now that i think is the transformation that could happen is that it's bringing millions of people into to realize just how fragile you know life can be and just how important having some kind of social security social insurance system is that's pretty sobering and do you think patrick it's that this is much deeper and broader than the global financial crisis in 08 and 09 it feels i mean it's difficult to say isn't it i think this feels much more universal in its impact right. so i think with i think going back to 2008 2009 i mean just talking to people about that um i think you saw certain sections of the economy really badly hit but there was no sense of it that it being you know a national lockdown there was no sense of it being this grave 
recession, there seemed to be an element of normal. I mean, people could still go about their lives normally, notwithstanding, you know, they, they had problems. The economy was still functioning normally. And I think what's different about this is it goes wider and it, part, it goes deeper. And but I think, you know, the scars will, you know, will be will last for quite a few years. One thing we talked about, I mean, regarding the 2008 crisis is that it's bad news for us is also sometimes good news for others, talking about the private equity and the hedge funds. So, I mean, I guess it's not happening already, but can you see that that there are forces that will take advantage of this situation now, that it's even more changed the power balance in your society? I would say this is not an area of expertise for me, but uh, I would say there are indications Aren't there? I mean, I was hearing this morning that um, the the increase in profits for people like Amazon, for example, have been astonishing over the last six months, and uh, and obviously that's partly to do with their business model, which has been able to capitalise on the fact that people can't go to shops so easily. Um, but it does seem to me that there will be people out there who have a huge amount of capital to invest and who will see opportunities in the crisis. Now, I'm not close enough to, to see whether that's actually happening, uh, but yeah, for sure. You know, in housing, um, if it turns out that we have, for example, a lot of uh, a lot of private landlords in this country are, are kind of you know, one man, one woman bands where they've 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 taken out a loan to buy a flat alongside their own house. And if they can't get if they can't cover their mortgage payments on that second flat um, for whatever reason, because, you know, the, they can't charge the same rents, they're forced to sell. Will there be a glut of properties coming on the market? Who's going to buy those? You know, mm. uh, so. I guess is there will be opportunities, and as you say, you know, it may not go the way that we particularly want it to go. No. Okay, we are we're running out of time. There is one thing that I would just a quick one, you know, because we also met outside Grenfell. This social housing, seventy-two people died, and and it's been a big big issue in the uk like a big scar in the soul of the nation in some way can you see that this horrific happening is changing something in the policies of of, of your country now the the memory of i Grenfell? think it's this is an interesting one isn't it because my views are slightly shaped by being in the media where you have this fast turnover of issues so you know there's Grenfell and austerity, but then there's Brexit. And after Brexit comes the coronavirus crisis, which just takes over everything. And um, I think it's important that we don't forget Grenfell and, and what it stood for and the causes of that. And, you know, certainly The Guardian is diligently sort of reporting the uh, ongoing public inquiry into the Grenfell disaster. So we are seeing some interesting uh, findings uh, coming out of those hearings. Now, whether or not people will still remember the significance of this four or five years on outside 
that group of people who are directly affected is going to be an interesting one, um, simply because there is so much competing for people's sort of eyeball space, their bandwidth. Um, but I think what the signi I, I, I think one of the things about Grenfell is people don't forget because it was such an awful, terrible symbol. Uh, you, all you need to do is see those clips on YouTube of that uh, that tower blazing away, and it reminds you. So I'm hopeful that we won't forget the lessons of Grenfell, but you know, so much happens so quickly. So it's a little yeah. bit up to us to to keep Grenfell something that we shouldn't forget about. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There is a movement of all the people in the UK living in buildings with that cladding on the front of their buildings. And so in that way, Grenfell will be remembered and kept alive because they're fighting tooth and nail to have that cladding removed, but but not at their own expense because they're not able to afford to pay for the removal of that cladding. So, I mean, that way. And I, I also wonder if there isn't a broader thing that might happen where um, folks who are really struggling um, start banding together a little more. So the, the, the folks who survived Grenfell start banding together with the folks who are really suffering poverty um, and exclusion in UK society as a result of the pandemic. That will be interesting to see if there's some sort of cross mobilization. I, 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 hmm. I, mean, I, I agree that, uh, Leilani. I think one of the interesting things to look out for with, with Grenfell is the way in which when the inquiry report presents, and I, I don't remember when that is, but when we, we have finally have the reckoning with Grenfell, to what extent this will be seen as just a problem with the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, which was the local authority. Was this you know, something that was just a kind of rogue council going out on its own as an outlier? Or are we going to see this as something that's much more structural? You know, the, the, the kind of lack of regulation, yeah. the cost cutting going on in the building, all this kind of thing. Are we going to get the bigger picture here? Or are we just going to stand and point at Kensington and Chelsea and say, ah, the bad guys? You know, I, th I think important we get the bigger picture on this. When we did the film, we looked into fires in social housing globally. So even in Sweden, this nice little country, we have more fires in so in something that's like would be called social housing, which we don't have that model, but still. I mean, we've seen a lot of these fires in Paris. We were in Chile. I mean, there's a lot of fires in in poor areas. So there's also a global pattern that there are more mm -hmm. fires where poor people live. So this is something we also should should keep um, in mind, Leilani. Yeah, I think I think that's really interesting. I did a piece of work recently with um, some folks living in um, kind of council estate, <clears throat> excuse me, in um, Melbourne, Australia. And they were put under a hard lockdown during the pandemic and a very hard lockdown. They were given, um, I think, 24 hours notice of this lockdown. Um, I say their human rights were being violated. They didn't have access to food and medicines. This is um, a refugee and migrant population um, and um, a lot of uh, psychosocial disabilities. And, and there, as a result of this hard lockdown, there was an increase in attempts of suicide and all sorts 
sorts of really horrible outcomes um, uh, in the face of this pandemic. What was so interesting to me was that the residents of uh, those council estates really identified with the folks in Grenfell. I thought that was so a very different circumstance. I mean, we're talking lockdown versus fire, but that feeling of voicelessness, lack of power, lack of political clout, et cetera, they re- and they identified themselves with the Grenfell Tower residents and survivors. And I think that's, if we'll boil that down to a challenge to journalists or maybe to politicians, that it's, there are voices in our society that we don't listen to. And that goes the same for Sweden, where Blackstone has been... You know, with this renovation wave we have around, I mean, in many other countries. So these voices, and a journalist has a big job to do here to to bring those stories up to the to the front pages. Not that easy, I know. Pushback talks. It's uh, something we do every week, Leilani, Farah, and me, because we want to stay relevant. We want to keep talking about important stuff, deepen and update stories from the documentary Push, where Leilani is the big hero. And today we talked to Patrick Butler, social policy editor at The Guardian. Thank you very much, Patrick, for for being on our show. You say show, it sounds like like a big time, but I'm standing here (laughs) behind my computer. But anyway, very nice to have you. And I'm I'm sure, uh, I hope we can keep talking because you, 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 you give us a lot. And and thank mm-hmm. you, Miss Farah. You're you're special. Not no, so you, special. You lost but it the was title. A That's true. You're, you're not so special <laughs> reporter, but you're still special. Not so special. Thank you very much. Oh, and uh, if you if you want to support uh, Pushback Talks, you can always go to something called Patreon, Patreon.com, and then go for Pushback Talks, and then you can support us because we are doing this without any money at all, which is like crazy and stupid. But that's how we roll. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. Yeah, crazy uh, well, and stupid. Thank, thank you, too. I've really enjoyed it. And I have to say, it's been a... a, a, a as you know, I came I came to this desk thinking, oh, my day is so stressful. And I just feel... I actually feel like I've just had coffee with a couple of friends. So it's been a, it's been a delight. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Patrick. And Leilani, we, next week we're going to talk about Spain. We're going to... Yeah, we so we're going to, to dig deeper into el Estado Español. So let's go for that. We are. Okay. And now it's time for me to walk the dog and it's garbage <laughs> it's day. It's garbage day and the dog will go crazy. <laughs> it, it's yeah. garbage day in, in my borough of Islington too. So there you go. What, what a strange coincidence. There we go. It's, there we go. It's, it's, it's garbage day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's all garbage. It's all garbage. <laughs> it's all garbage. <laughs> But it's also Friday, so let's enjoy yeah. it. Take care and thank you very yes. much. See Thanks. you soon. Yeah. Bye. Thanks. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To watch Push, visit pushthefilm.com. You can also support us by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again next week. <laughs> <laughs>